Hello, everybody. Good afternoon, everyone. And good morning to those who are at the other side of the world. And of course, good evening to our very special guest tonight. Our topic is no other than type 1 diabetes. So I know it's quite a controversial topic, but this time we are going to be somewhat enlightened and witness it firsthand. So this is quite an early, an early broadcast because our guest is actually from Honolulu, Hawaii, and it's already nine o'clock in the evening there. So that's why we said good evening. And the most important part of this is that type 1 diabetes is not just a disease of, of, of those in the foreign countries, of other people, because right now here in the Philippines, there are already a lot of people with type 1 diabetes. And if I can say, a lot of them came from mothers mostly or their history in the family before the pregnancy, during the pregnancy, that somewhat predisposed the child to have that type 1 diabetes. But most importantly, it's not about blaming, but it's about ensuring that the child will grow up healthy, normal, and with the definition of what's normal, really, we will talk about that. So thank you guys for tuning in. Kindly share this because as we said, this episode is truly one for the books. So let me help help me welcome Sir R.D. Dykeman of Type 1 Grit and also a father to David Dykeman, who is a currently an athlete already, thriving athlete, but with diagnosed type 1 diabetes. Hello, R.D. Hi, Grace. Thank you for inviting me uh, to be on your show. Very much welcome. The pleasure is ours and a lot of our um, viewers right now are really, really excited to get to know more. And of course, since we are now advocating this way of life nationwide in the whole country and most Filipinos, you know, Filipinos tend to be all over the world. So we actually mm -hmm. somewhat want to be advocates wherever we are. And type 1 diabetes, at least at least one person knows someone with type 1 diabetes. But right. seldom do we find them practicing low carb or if even aware of low carb. So thank right. you so much. And so without wasting so much time, we want to go through. I have a set of questions here and I just want to to take your side as as a parent i know you've been in this journey for quite a long time so somewhat yeah. some might be a little far ahead to recall but i hope you right. can help the new parents who were who've had just ch children or siblings with with type 1 diabetes, how they struggled, and to give them the, the inspiration that they're actually not really scarred for life. So as a start, uh, as your parents' journey, uh, how was the David diagnosed? Can you recall? What was his symptoms? Yeah, it was about 10 years ago. And um, Dave's diagnosis story is pretty typical. He um, he probably had undiagnosed diabetes for, for maybe a year um, undetected, but probably in the last three months, his behavior started to change. Uh, our his teacher, this is, this is when he was in third grade, his teacher reported that his head, he would put his head on the table and he didn't have a lot of energy. Um, Dave has always been a really good athlete and um, in his, on his teams, even when he was little, he was an exceptional um, athlete and, and 
before his diagnosis, his uh, ability to play sports started to suffer. And we found that very strange. Um, he also looked like he was losing weight, but he was my first child. And I thought maybe he's just getting leaner as he goes into puberty. Um, so it was a little bit of a puzzle, but I didn't really notice it. And um, his mom didn't notice it. We had had a few conversations, but nothing that we thought was serious. And then um, about a week before he was diagnosed, he became very ill. He stayed home uh, for a week with me. I stayed home with him and I thought he had the flu and we took him to his doctor and she confirmed that he had some kind of flu or fever and he should just rest. So she blew the diagnosis, his, his pediatrician. And that's pretty common. They don't check blood sugars. Um, and we just missed it. And um, one day um, while I was staying home, Dave became very ill. He was not able to move off the couch. I had to lift him off the couch physically. And when I picked him up, um, he weighed, he was light as a feather. Mm. And I could feel his bones on his leg and then on his rib cage. And he had lost so much weight. And I, I had him to like take his shirt off. And he looked like uh, he, I never saw anything like it. I can't believe how fast it happened mm -hmm. that, his, that he had just uh, gotten into this state. In a matter of days, he, he had just become a skeleton. Mm -hmm. And I called my wife and I said, I think Dave's dying. Mm -hmm. And um, we had some tests done and rushed him to the hospital. Our, our doctor called and said, you have to take him to the hospital. He's got type one diabetes. And my wife and I had no idea what diabetes was. I had no idea what type one was, what type two was, but it was very serious. And um, Dave was in the hospital for a few days recovering from what's called diabetic ketoacidosis. And so, yes. Yeah, that's that's how it all began. And um, okay. that was about 10 years ago now. And as you said, it's somewhat the typical scenario. And uh, mm -hmm. with your like even stories from others, have you have heard that some cases really didn't recover? Like the first yeah, diagnosis I, led to I hear, a fatal result? Yes, I hear from time to time that um and i believe that dave was a few hours away from dying if we would have if we would have stayed home instead of gone to the hospital that night i don't think dave would have survived to the next day and the doctor told us that immediately and we see kids um uh, you know in social media now we're we're all diabetic diabetes advocates now dave included and we see reports of children dying um from misdiagnosis or lack of diagnosis yeah. Um, yeah. It's quite, it's not uncommon. Yeah. Yes. And actually, we have an advocate as well, a pediatrician who is an advocate of low carb in the country is Dr. Brian Castillo. And he said that he sees patient at the emergency room diagnosed with some other illness, but now they do random check and it's, it's DKA. And somewhat, uh, some of these patients are just presenting symptoms like flu or just the typical other other illness that they just feel not so good about but this one is really an eye opener especially because we there might be 
so much delta yield science i'm sure that was your first child you were very focused and yet you were not able to you were not able to recognize how fast no. he was losing weight during no. that time no it happened so fast um mm -hmm. you know he was not he wasn't um an infant and he wasn't even a small child he he dressed himself in the morning and um so i never saw him you know with his um you know, his shirt off or anything like that. So I never was able to observe his loss of weight clearly. Yes. Um, but now when I look at the pictures, especially the, the two weeks before he was diagnosed, I feel, you know, I feel like I made a real mistake because when you look at his picture, it's pretty clear that something was terribly right. wrong. So I do have some... I, you know, I have a little bit of guilt and, yes. uh, mm. and, but I, I can tell you, Grace, I had never heard of type one diabetes. I mean, yes. I've heard of it, but you know, you see it on you TV. You wouldn't think it would happen to you. I, I didn't even know what it was. I thought people oh. had to eat some candy once in a while or something like, I never, I never, you know, it's funny because I, I, you think you would have come across it, but I never had. Okay. So is it safe to say that you and your wife doesn't have any medical, solid medical background prior to this? That's true. Yeah. Okay. True. Okay. So Dr. Brian Castillo is actually here. So he said, if the pediatrician was late in diagnosing DKA, that kid will surely die. And yep. others will be diagnosed as asthma. So this is no laughing matter. This is no small matter. It's really the life of the child. So after he was diagnosed, so what, and with a re realization that two weeks ago, you would have done something already to prevent that. So what were your greatest fears upon learning, say, for example, what type 1 diabetes is? So for those of you who are watching, we are dedicating this episode for those with families with type 1 diabetes. So if you want to know more about it, just search in the definition and other details. But in here, since you already know that what type 1 diabetes is, how it is related to the blood sugar of the child and how too much sugar can really can really put him in danger again or too low sugar the same right. way can happen what were your biggest fears right after knowing that that david had type 1 diabetes well it was interesting i think our story now becomes a little different because when we met with our endocrinologist he my wife knew him through some other relationships she had. So we, it's Hawaii, everyone sort of knows each other. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think because of that and because my son goes to the same school that he went to, they made a quick bond together. And he was very honest with Dave about what he needed to do because he told Dave, your blood sugar goes too low, you're gonna pass out and, and faint you're gonna have a hypoglycemia attack. But if it goes too high for too long, you can get severe complications like blindness and amputation, and it's very serious. And then I kind of remember I, that I, I immediately heard that and started to study what were the complications of diabetes. And it was a very scary hour that I spent, you know, on the computer studying while we were in the hospital. And during the discussion with the endocrinologist, he explained how carbohydrates make your insulin or your blood sugar go up. And 
when you inject insulin, which you have to do as a type one, it makes your blood sugar down, go down. And you have to balance that. That's, that was the, that's the ball game that he taught us. And Dave was really, uh, he's a smart guy and his comment, which is the classic comment on this story was, well, then I just won't eat carbohydrates. What wisdom. And, and yeah, and we, the doctor and I laughed at him because we said, well, of course you need carbohydrates. You need, you have to have energy. Um, everybody needs carbohydrates. And um, I can't say that that's stuck with me, but I, when we got home, I tried, I said, I'm, I said, okay, I'm smart. I'm a really smart guy. I can figure out how to give the right amount of insulin so he can eat his carbs and not go high and not go low. And I played that game for about two weeks with Dave while he was recuperating. And what we learned was, and I took lots of notes and I'm a scientist. So I took lots of data and I measured out the oatmeal and I measured out the cookie and we would give them in precise weight amounts, but the precise amount of insulin. And every time we would do that experiment, we would get a different result. Sometimes he would go high. Sometimes he would go low. Sometimes it would work. And then the next time he would go high again. And Every time, and I was, so I was with Dave all day and my wife would come home from work and she'd say, how did it go? And I would say, oh, you know, I think I got it. You know, I figured it out. You know, we can have oatmeal every day. And then, and the next day it wouldn't work. And after a while, my wife said, you know, you're crazy what you're doing. It's not working. And she got on Amazon and she bought this book called Dr. Bernstein's Diabetes Solution, which is like one of the Bibles of low carb diabetes management uh, and, Ardy, uh, i'd like to cut cut off a little with that yeah. i would first before going there so yeah. i would like to emphasize so you followed the diabetes guidelines you followed the dietary guidelines yeah. the standard one before yeah. before doing so, anything so okay. that's why i printed this out okay before so, so yes. here's the here's the kind of food they would tell you to eat okay, okay. What is they that? did not. They did not tell you to eat a low carb diet. This is what they told you to eat. Ready? Ready. Um, three pieces of pizza, uh, a slice of chocolate cake. Uh, that's 165 carbs. Next one. Um, eight chicken nuggets, fries, and a peach milkshake. Uh, I don't know the carb. 150 carbs. I'll give you one more. Uh, a frozen pizza, four cookies, and two cups of chocolate milk. And I can't even add that. That's too high. That's so high, I can't okay. add. Okay. So those are uh, somewhat like a, in the candy land, <laughs> the things that you can find in the candy land. That's, but that's, it's that's tapered right. for type 1 diabetes given that it's pediatric patients, right? So that's right. And you've seen results that are all over the place. You are focusing before on the insulin part so that because your goal is just how much insulin to that David need in order to lower it down to just the level that is not yes. too low, not too high, without considering that upon intake, there will really be that shoot up. And yes. then what you just need to do is you add insulin right then and there. 
So you you can't you can't match the food with injections. It's impossible. The carbohydrates too fast, and the insulin is fast too. But you can never match these two things. They're always a little bit off. It's like it's like taking a bow and arrow and trying to shoot a fly. You oh can't. My. Sometimes you it's, hit it and you feel. It's impossible. It's impossible to do consistently, yeah. and nobody does it. Um, the average A1C or the average blood sugar of a type one diabetic following this meal plan is uh, extremely high. You, you, yes. uh, you know. Okay. You, with that, with that meal plan, what is the worst thing that you can imagine that you can think of with that meal plan? If you can pick the first two things that you know upon knowing what you know now, the worst ones that they included there. Well, it it um, it lit it. First of all, if Dave would have eaten that way, um, like like most type ones, he would live in a, a constant state of terror because you have so much insulin in your body trying to cover that food that if you if you do something like imagine a kid who eats a, a lunch like that and takes this huge dose of insulin and then starts running around outside and playing with his friends on at school. That kid is going to have hypoglycemia and pass out. So the only way to avoid that is to run your blood sugar so high that you have a safety margin. And if you do that, even, even little kids know the consequences of that. And the consequences are gruesome. You, if Dave had been doing that for the last 10 years, he would already have damage to his eyes, damage to his kidneys, damage to his vascular system. He would have detectable consequences and complications of diabetes. So it's a ball game you cannot win. You're in a constant state of terror in the short term. And in the long term, you're going to suffer these horrible consequences and shorten your life. So it's a, they, they are prescribing with food like this, a life of misery, and it destroys the life. It's a, it's a disgrace. It destroys the life of every type one kid that follows that meal plan. Thank you. Thank you for that. I would like to emphasize here. Can you still recall that when you did the standard diet for type one diabetes, what mm -hmm. was, was David's A1C? Or at least if you didn't get it, at least an average of your daily monitoring. Yeah, I have the I have the graphs still and I share the graphs with people and his average blood sugar was about 200, which is an A1C of 8%. But unlike the diagnosis where we were very unlucky, getting back to my story, Roxanne, my wife, was we were lucky enough to discover that book only a month into diagnosis. Wow. So That's really good. we never had the high A1Cs for an extended period of time. I have the first month of data, but yeah. we got we got lucky and we got smart right away. Oh my God. And I'm um, so happy David only lasted for one month with that diet. Because A1C, as you can see, is it right? Around eight maybe? Around eight yes. percent. Around eight percent. So, and that is what they are giving. But what is the number that they say will have complications? Well, they're changing their story. Um, they used to tell you that eight was okay, and that's a good target. And now, just recently, 
they quietly, and I'm talking about the diabetes associations, they, they acknowledge that elevated blood sugars cause damage to the developing child brain and a number of other complications, including uh, increased mortality, meaning that you die earlier. And so they advise lower targets and really as low as you can possibly go without experiencing hypoglycemia. So um, I think the problem is that those associations, that little article isn't being spread around to the doctors and dietitians. And so when you are a parent of a type one, when you go to your endocrinologist, it's almost 100% guaranteed that you're gonna to be told to eat the kind of food that I just showed you and run an A1C of about seven or 8%. And that guarantees diabetic complications. And I would like to emphasize with this, for those who are not familiar, so HbA1c is supposedly an average of your blood sugar control for the last three months, depending on the life of your RBC. So just get this idea. Even if they, even if we say that they want to have a target of just seven, let's say, for example, they are now changing their line that seven is already a good control. But how come that upon diagnosis of someone who is not yet diabetic in the first place, the cutoff is actually seven itself or more than 6.5. So why would you target an area where you were diagnosed? Mm -hmm. If you want to heal someone, why not move your target way lower? So the question here is very important as to why. And they say that, yes, that can happen. And as per definition, I know uh, RD is an author of the the dedicated blog for diabetes, A Sweet Life. And the tagline there is that each diabetic is actually deserving of a normal blood glucose. So yes. that is a very important line because most dietitians, most nutritionists, what they emphasize is not a normal blood glucose. What they emphasize, each diabetic is, is deserving to have a normal diet, to enjoy food, to enjoy all of these without considering that the main problem of diabetics are sugar itself, the sugar control. So that's right. So, that's right. Yeah, so I'm so happy with that tagline, emphasizing on normalization, not the way of eating, but really on the blood sugar control, because that is where it all boils down. That's right. And if you if you look closely at the research, especially recent research, what we know is that elevated blood sugars at any level are the cause of both macrovascular, meaning heart disease, and microvascular, meaning kidney disease and eye disease, um, at any level. So you don't wanna have elevated blood sugars at all, let alone a, an A1C of 7%, which is more than double normal. You wanna have your A1C be at 5.0 or lower if you can get it that low and you want to have blood sugars when you wake up below 100, preferably in the 80s. Um, yes. and, and, and you want to have normal blood sugars, whether you're a diabetic or not. And the funny thing here is the definition of what's normal is even very distorted. Like an RBS, a random blood sugar, is considered normal as long as it won't go beyond 200. Mm. And 
if you are eating six times a day, three times a day, you are elevating that blood sugar that high. And I would also like to emphasize that I think the makers of insulin before were with, with good intentions because what they know before, 80 years ago, 90 years ago, weren't that much. So what they just know that diabetes have so much sugar in their blood and putting in insulin will lower it down. So with that alone, they maximize it, but without knowing that it's actually not just the sugar that's the problem. But eventually, too much insulin in the system will also cause so many damages that even that the problem now with diabetic is actually not just the elevated blood sugar, but the elevated insulin itself. Insulin resistance relating to metabolic syndrome, relating to <laughs> practically all of the lifestyle diseases that we have today. And sometimes not even diseases that are not considered as lifestyle disease. But I'm so happy that you, that David got you as parents and it was just one month. I think that one month is just the God's plan for you to have your own testimony, but no, not to risk David any further. And so what happened in, the, in that first month and when you found Dr. Richard Bernstein? And can you tell us a little about, about the great Dr. Bernstein? Well, the I mean, I think the the... The cool part of that story is when I got the book, I realized that kind of what Dave Dave's idea was correct all along, which is <laughs> that you want to minimize the carbohydrate. That's the whole key. And, uh, you know, when I read that book, I thought, oh, geez, Dave is right. <laughs> you know, so we stopped uh, we stopped the oatmeal and I started making Dave, you know, bacon and eggs for breakfast. And immediately the blood, immediately the problem was nearly solved. And then because Dave is type one, we had to learn how to use insulin mm -hmm. and that's very tricky. So it takes time to learn, but you can see that the problem is solvable once you yeah. change the diet. And um, it took us a few weeks, maybe a couple months to really figure out how to change the diet and feed everybody. Um, we all changed as a family. But after that, it changed everything about how the disease felt. It felt it went from being this nightmare where I was terrified that I was going to lose my son um, to kind of turning into a nuisance where it, it, it was like Dave is OK, but every once in a while I have to give him a little bit of glucose to raise his blood sugar a little bit or sometimes he gets up a little bit his blood sugar gets up a little bit, I have to give him an extra shot or I have to wake up in the middle of the night. So it turned, it turned into kind of a nuisance, you know, it, it, it turned into a, a little bit of a, um, a, a job, but it didn't have the terror. And we don't, I don't fear Dave um, getting, getting sick or um, having complications anymore. Uh, it's an absurd thought. I think Dave is probably, as healthy as any non-diabetic that we know of. Um, his blood sugar is certainly normal and he exercises and is very strong. So, um, uh, you know, it's been a real um, achievement by him to do what he's done. Yes. Um, you asked about Dr. Bernstein. I can tell you about him too, because um, we wrote up a story about Dave uh, in, in a magazine or an online magazine. 
And um, we sent it to Dr. Bernstein and we got in touch with him. And he decided, and we decided through a conversation to start doing uh, online videos. And so Dave and I have been um, producing his videos for since 2014 and spreading the word that um, diabetes and type one can be controlled. And even kids don't need carbohydrates, they need normal blood sugars. And um, I think we've done a good job at spreading the word and getting it out. And you can see that there's so many people who are following this uh, low carb strategy and, and thriving. I, I meet new people every day who have watched the videos and learned and um, their kids, they're showing me their blood sugars and the blood sugars are flat or even adults who have been type one for decades are changing their lives. So it's um, we've kind of turned into advocates. So I would like to emphasize. So you started Dave's story ten years ago, and right now he's already seventeen. So that's yeah. somewhat quite a long story. And yes. people are saying maybe it's not. It's not. It's just a fad. Maybe it's not long term. Mm. So is it uh, correct that Dr. Bernstein himself is the living testament of this of this lifestyle? Oh yeah. Period? Well, I left that out, right? Dr. Bernstein is, uh, well, Dr. Bernstein was diagnosed when he was 12. He's 87 now. Mm. And when he was in his 40s, he nearly died from kidney disease as a result of uh, complications. And he had other, he had heart disease and other complications too, a, a list of complications that are very long. Mm. And most of those complications, he's totally reversed. And, and he's because he learned on his own how to control his blood sugars through diet and insulin management. He f was the first person to ever figure it out. He's literally the Einstein of type one diabetes. Mm -hmm. He figured out how to control his blood sugars. He's still a practicing physician when he's 87, you know, 87 years old. Um, there's no mental decline. I mean, he's just an unbelievable human being. Yes. Um, that's why I invite everyone to check out Dr. Richard Bernstein's page. Yes, he is in Facebook and he also do Q&A. So you can send in your questions from time to ahead. That's and right. Yeah. Dr. Bernstein will actually answer it. And it's so funny. He even answered one personal question about hobbits and about the hobbit, about the book. He's really <laughs> an amazing guy. So I really love right. Dr. Bernstein. And I believe that David now is actually an intern with Dr. Bernstein's clinic. Oh yeah, he's been doing that for a long time, and um, he writes. Um, so he's trying to get the message out too, and it's not uncommon because when you're a type one diabetic and you've you've tried to follow the standard guidelines, it's such a hellish misery that when you figure it out, um, your life changes, and you want you 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 feel compelled to help others. Um, so everybody that I know that's come across this solution, this low carb solution, instantly turns into an advocate and starts uh, in social media, especially there's so many opportunities, starts trying to spread the message. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's just a, it's a phenomenon. And I think yeah. the fact that we have these glucose monitors now that display pictures of what your glucose is like. Mm. People love to share those images on social media. And it's empowering. And, 
Yes, it is empowering. Exact. That is the perfect word. It is empowering to to um, to, to be in be control. To really yeah. be in control. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, yeah. uh, I have my patients this morning, so usually I put them on really monitoring. So the first episode of the first discussion in the clinics of saying doing low carb, it's always a shock for the common people for the average person not ever hearing that carbohydrates is not essential so we are yeah. making that a statement carbohydrate is not essential okay right. our but what is essential is glucose and glucose can be created by your own liver and mm -hmm. by that definition it's no longer essential from the outside source okay sure. so we have to emphasize that to everyone. And as per my patient, the moment that they learn after a month follow-up, I usually tell them. So my purpose is just to educate you. But at the end of the day, it's not me who is healing you. It's not me who lower down your A1C. It's you who lower down your A1C. I had a patient this morning followed up. August 3, A1C 7.2. Yeah, 7.2. Now, uh, he, got, he came back. Uh, she came back with... Uh, A1C after only 25 days, it's down to 5.6. Oh, that's fantastic. That's really fantastic. Mm -hmm. So two things, that's just barely four weeks. So for, I know I told them that if you do it with medications alone, no matter how many medications you will take, you will never get that number. And it's two of them. Mm -hmm. They're actually couples. And that's, the, that's great. and the, the, the husband, at 6.9, I think, or 6.7, now also down to 5.1 in it's, just 25 days. It's unbelievable. I've seen what your story, I've seen uh, Dr. Eric Westman. He has a, a chart that shows the exact same thing with his patients. He took yeah. 100 patients. He showed the average A1C was mm -hmm. like 8, 7.8, something like that. And then 5.4 immediately immediately it's, it's shocking how it's never fast. been done before in standard definition of medical practice mm -hmm. and i understand and that's why i told them that even if like in theory and i've seen it many times in my previous patients but every time i still see it it still amazes me i still have goosebumps for every reaffirmation for every confirmation mm -hmm. that this thing really works and to yeah. add to this, I actually screenshot Dave's uh, from the oh, Dave's good. video. Yeah, so right. the first one, the one that you can see on the upper end, uh, the dots here are actually the the glucose of Dave's on a day-to-day -day basis. Was this ACGM continuous glucose monitoring? No, or that was you manually plot manually plotted before. Yes, during the yeah. first month yeah. of diagnosis. Yes, Th those are manual, just taking finger sticks. Okay, okay, and mm -hmm. only after a month. When they already started somewhat on the on the baby phase of of their journey with Dr. Bernstein's protocol, you can see that somewhat it's not it's not that all over the place. So there are highs and lows, but it's not extreme highs and lows already. That's right. That's and the right. best thing here is here. It's almost like a line. That's it's right. almost like a line. So is it right that each color will represent whether it's before meals or after meals? Uh, I think the colors are different days. I think days. there's probably a week worth of lines on top of each other. Okay, so this can you can see that the numbers actually don't go too up or too low, too high or too low. So That's this right. is what we considered as stable blood sugar. Yes. And 
this is very remarkable for someone with type 1 diabetes. But I want also to emphasize that for those people who do not have type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes, this is actually the blood sugar that we should all normally aim for, right? Yep. That's, I mean, I've, I've taken, I've, I've taken Dave's CGM and worn it myself. Um, now I used to be a high carb before we knew about diabetes. I used to eat pizza and, and junk food and I was overweight and I'm sure that my blood sugars probably looked actually like the, 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 first dark, one? the dark gray. Yes. Um, but I didn't ever measure them until we had gone low carb as a family. And then I finally did put on a CGM and, and that trace the good one that looks like what mine looked like. It was always between 70 and 95. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how about those? Uh, this is a common question. Why is it that some people uh, who do not have diabetes, the moment they eat, they their blood sugar from, say, for example, 80, it can even go down to 78 or 79. What could that be? Why is that? Well, I can only speculate what I think that might be. And... And if we're talking about type two diabetes, well, first of all, you might get a clue from type one diabetes and in type one diabetes, Dave might eat a meal and immediately his blood sugar starts dropping a little. And that would mean that his insulin is working before the food works. And, and that might be the same problem with the type two diabetic. So in type two, type two diabetes is actually very complicated, but basically, your insulin signaling starts to suffer and, and not respond as well as it did when you are insulin sensitive. And so it may be that you're getting a spike of insulin and that's lowering your blood sugar before the food hits. But I'm just speculating about that. But that can really make sense. So going back to David, uh, yeah. when, when he first started, even if the idea actually it was already in him before it all began, the low carb. But the moment he adapted low carb, uh, was there any challenge on his part or he was in it uh, 100%? Um, I think there's a lot of challenges when a kid first starts. And I think they're all solvable, um, but it takes some time to get the solutions. So, for example, if you're a little kid, you're going to go to parties with your other friends. And at the parties, they're going to have carbohydrate foods. So what if you go to a pizza party for your friend's birthday? Or what if there's some cake at your friend's birthday? What do you do? And Dave's solution is a good solution. So if there's pizza, Dave will just eat the cheese on the pizza and not eat the carbohydrate. If, if everyone's drinking soda, he'll, he'll have a diet soda. Uh, if people are eating a hamburger, he'll just eat the, the burger patty. He won't eat the bun. And um, that's totally, that works. That's the end of the problem. Um, he doesn't want his blood sugar to be too high or too low. So he, he avoids the things that will cause that to happen. Um, yeah. So that's one challenge. And then there are other challenges that are um, not food related challenges, but insulin related challenges. And if you look at that chart that you showed earlier, you'd say, well, why, why didn't he immediately go and have a flat line? Why did his blood sugar not get to perfect right away? And the problem is that using insulin is very complicated. 
And you have to, Dave uses three different kinds of insulin uh, for three different situations. And we're always trying to, Dave and I are always working together as a team. You know, how much insulin is this? And, you know, how much should I correct? And it's a, it's a problem. It's a solvable problem, but it's a complicated problem and it takes experience. So those are the kind of problems that he's left with the social food problems not so much. You you solve those problems. And once you get rid of the carbohydrate, if you keep it away, you don't tend to add it back. If you if you if you if you let it tempt you and you keep adding it back here and there, eventually it'll come back. So when you when you get rid of that carbohydrate, you have to get rid of it. And for little kids, the parents have got to get rid of it and they've got to get it out of the house. It's too tempting. As we know, as you can see, it's tempting for everybody. You have to get rid of it from the house. The parents have to support the child by getting rid of it. And even the siblings, Dave's little brother doesn't eat carbohydrate at all and he's not diabetic. So, but he knows he's, he knows he's gonna support his brother by not eating it. So he doesn't eat it at school when he's alone or he just won't eat it. And that's the level of support that you have to have as a family. So those are really very important points. Uh, we can tackle more about low carb for non-diabetic kids like the, like Dave's brother. Uh, and I understand from what your story, I can uh, we can all see that Dave is really up, uh, above average when it comes to like intelligence processing and all that. So that's why it wasn't even it wasn't really that hard to make him understand. So yeah. as a parent. What can you advise those other parents who only have five years old, six years old, seven years old? When do you think they should start educating the children about the impact of these addicting foods, this, these kids' treats to their, to their health as type 1 diabetics? Uh, when they should uh, allow them to realize what they really have? I'll, I'll be honest with you. I never expected. I never thought it was true. It took me years to learn the biggest problem is not with the children, it's with the parents. Mm -hmm. The parents will not give up the carbohydrate, even if they, even if they're, you know, when you have a type one diabetic child, you are managing their blood sugar 24 seven. You're testing their blood sugar, you're feeding them, you're injecting insulin. It's a 24 seven job, including at night, you have to check their blood sugars. So you would think that as a parent, you would notice the impact of carbohydrate foods on the child and especially foods like cake, ice cream, chips, cookies. Those foods are a disaster. And yet you still see those foods being pushed on the children. And it's very rare for the parents to restrict that toxic food. And I think the reason why is the, what you just said, that the food is addictive mm -hmm. and the parents are addicted and they, mm -hmm. they have trouble getting it out of the house. Yeah. And so that's the number one problem that needs to be solved. And there's another interesting bit on that, which is that type one kids now used to, type one kids used to be lean and thin. Now there's more obesity in type one children yeah. 
than there is in, in, in non-diabetic children where it's at epidemic levels. So the type one kids now do not just have type one diabetes, they have type two diabetes and they're called double diabetic. Oh my God. Oh. That's, how, that's how bad it is. And it's a problem of diet. It starts when the doctors and the dietitians tell the kids to eat this kind of food. It's, and then the parents never get rid of it from the house. Okay. I would like to emphasize that, the double diabetics. So this was actually first somewhat opened up to us by another Filipino doctor practicing in Middle East. So she is Dr. Suzette Encarnado. She is a, she is a diabetologist and a low-carb practitioner. And we are somewhat uh, very uh, happy that they are already giving it on a standard form. Like they already have forms that for their obesity clinic, they give very low carb. So in Arabic, uh, since it's in the Middle East, it's really a norm there. So it's an option, known option. But for us here, I don't think it's going to happen in the next 10 or 20 years or so. But yes, the double diabetics, because I think it's at this point, we would like to emphasize the type 1 diabetics do not have the capacity to produce their own insulin, right? That's Compared true. to type 2 diabetes, they actually have produced insulin. However, their cells stop responding or somewhat the insulin is no longer that robust. But right. eventually, the complication is insulin resistance, wherein right. there's too much insulin, but it's no longer effective. And the presence of too much insulin per se is causing these complications, obesity, fatty liver, elevated cholesterol, and all that. So what is double diabetics? It's a person, a child, who, who cannot produce insulin. So there's no insulin in there. And you allow that child to eat so much carbohydrates, needing so much insulin, regular insulin. And that insulin can still lead to that some, some degree of insulin resistance. The difference between the insulin resistance of double diabetics and type 2 diabetics is just the insulin resistance of double diabetics came from exogenous, artificial, injected insulins. So those are really very, very important things because we all thought that insulin is just an answer without considering that that also can cause so much problem if not done the right way. And if I may ask, as you as based on your experiences and of course you as an advocate now and as a founder of type 1 grit for those who are starting since since type 2 diabetics they are type 2 diabetics who are dependent on insulin and the moment they do low carb eventually they no longer needed it in a month or maybe i even have patients who discontinued it on her own after just barely two weeks and everything is normal and how about with type 1 since they are somewhat insulin dependent, what is the purpose of insulin injections for type 1 diabetics yeah. doing low carb or very low carb or even zero carb? That's a good question. It's a, it's a complicated question. And I, I've, I've, when you started asking that question, I, my mind went in a million different places. But let's, <laughs> let's take Dave as an example. Um, Dave, I said Dave is taking three different kinds of insulin. But yet Dave is eating very little carbohydrate, probably less than 20 to 30 grams a day. And, and the carbohydrates he's eating are from nuts and from vegetables. So what is, why does he need so much insulin? 
the problem is that this there's an idea that's taught to us as new new parents that insulin is only working on glucose and shuttling glucose in and out of cells but insulin has many functions in the body protein dietary protein is metabolized through insulin um, your liver is kept in check it functions by having the proper amount of insulin in the body so uh, and even fat is uh, requires insulin to some degree so the the priority of of Dave's insulin that he injects is not for carbohydrate metabolism. It's for those other functions. And those functions are vital, especially for a young person. You take a guy like Dave, Dave's grown from a little boy to a tall, strong man over the last 10 years. And the insulin that he's injecting is to cover protein nutrition. And that's the context that we want insulin in. We, especially for young people, we want insulin to be a hormone for nutrients and protein. We don't want insulin to manage a heavy dietary energy load made from processed food where insulin is constantly trying to shove in the food that you're eating into your fat stores and hold it there. So, I like to look at the insulin problem and, and, and also, by the way, with Dave going through puberty, his insulin demands are quite high because there are counter-regulatory hormones, growth hormones that make insulin, make, make Dave insulin resistant, but not in the type two diabetic way in this, in a sort of natural way where he's, he's growing. So we see kids from the age of eight to 17, we see their insulin demands go way up and then come back down again as they become adults. And that's because they're growing. That's the right context of insulin. The wrong context of insulin is obesity and, and overeating of processed carbohydrate. So, um, and anyway, that, that's one answer. The other answer is that there are families who, now type one occurs in stages. So if you catch it late, uh, like we did with Dave, he no longer makes any insulin. But there are some families who are luckier or smarter than we were, and they catch it early. And when you catch it early, you catch a kid or even adult who's still making some insulin, and they're able to metabolize the food they eat if, if it's low carb, without injecting insulin or by in just injecting a few units of insulin. And that's called a honeymoon. Yeah. And that's kind of a precious situation because it's much easier to control blood sugars in your honeymoon than it is when you're completely unable to make insulin. And we do see a lot of people on social media who catch their child's disease early and are able to sustain using just one type of insulin and a little, and a little dose um, or, um, maybe they only take one unit for a, a big protein meal, whereas Dave might need seven or eight units for a, the same meal. Um, and that's just because they caught it early and they went low carb. So that, and that's a, that's something that Bernstein talks a lot about too, about his, his patient experience and keeping his patients in a state of honeymoon for a prolonged period for 
uh, with a low carb diet. So there's another benefit of the low carb diet that um, you're not told about as a, a newly diagnosed. Instead, you're told the opposite, right? With let me grab the menu again. That's what you're told. And, and what that does is it, is it cheats the child and the family out of having the potential for a long uh, honeymoon where the, the child can have um, uh, less of a impact of their type one diabetes in their life. And that's, a, that's another sad outcome that's never discussed. Yeah. So thank you for pointing that out. So to emphasize, okay, insulin here, we are not against insulin, but we actually want to work with insulin the best way possible because insulin is essential for growth, especially for growing children. This is a very familiar because we actually did a, we have an ongoing diabetes masterclass to promote this. And we are so happy that we have coaches now all over the Philippines right now. We are rearing almost 150. So these are combinations of laymen, doctors, nurses, nutritionists, who are really open to low-carb nutrition, and they are now start, starting to get to know insulin this way. Because for the longest time, even me as a doctor in my standard standard uh, medical, medical education, insulin was just emphasized as a blood sugar lowering hormone. Mm -hmm. But it's not all that. It is an anabolic hormone. It is a mm -hmm. building up hormone. And it is most essential for growing children. It, Without insulin, even if you take proteins, that amino acid cannot enter the muscles and can be formed into right. muscles. Okay, so that is a very basic thing. And even the presence of, of other metabolites, it will not be used up as an important ingredient for production of your hair, of your nails, of your skin, and everything in a growing child. And even on in adults who who keeps on who who is living so that is a very important thing about insulin and now the honeymoon phase because we have to understand that type 1 is an autoimmune disease so eventually somewhat the pancreas is being attacked by the person's own body but as what rd emphasized if you caught it early when the the pancreas is not yet fully Attack, fully attacked or defeated by the by these autoimmune complexes, you might have a some degree of functioning pancreas. So meaning a somewhat fun functioning can pancreas can be able to produce some degree of endogenous natural insulin. So what you just need to do is to supply the necessary insulin. So it can be of different types. It can be just a fast acting one, like for immediate needs, for example, or sudden rush of your blood sugar, or maybe baseline or just regular, regular insulin to normalize your blood sugar. No highs, no lows, no dips and spikes, just a basic insulin basic blood sugar level so this is very important and i think the takeaway for this is to not just follow just one but you have to experience it yourself and work with someone who is knowledgeable because individual differences is very very varied when it comes to type 1 diabetes how about your experience with type 1 grit rd um that that has been uh so that's an interesting story too and um i'll tell that story real quick um, after we had the success with Dave, like I was saying, when you have that success, you want to, you want to help people, you, you want to show people what, what, what's, you know, what, what can change their life too. And 
when we started to share that message on social media, uh, it had a it had a different reaction than what I expected. I thought everyone would would say, "Oh my God, this is the big discovery," and um, it wasn't quite that way. There, some people became very angry, um, and that took me off guard. But uh, every once in a while, we would meet a couple of people who said, "Yeah, I do that too." And have you read that book? That's where we learned to do it. And it was funny because some of the people were from another country, and some people were older women, and some people were teenage boys. Or it, it didn't matter who the person was. And you could take any type of person, and they were all doing the same thing. They were all doing this low carb diet. And we became friends in social media. It's so easy to make friends with people, even though we're on this island, you know, out in the Pacific. We have now hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of friends from around the world. And uh, we just naturally fell into making this group. And um, that was, um, you know, that was Dave's idea. Again, um, originally we had a lot of pushback from people uh in social media but dave said no no stick stick with it um keep keep getting the word out and we did and we started that group and i started it with three other uh folks all with different backgrounds and you know it was interesting the group started to grow and grow uh we had some doctors in the group who were also type 1 diabetics and they said, you know, what's going on in this group is incredible. All these people are having these blood sugars, which are better than, than non-diabetics. And they contacted some researchers at Harvard. And we started a study. And that uh, the, there was a paper that was written about the group, uh, the first ever paper on very low-carb diets for type 1 diabetics. Uh, it showed that there were unprecedented glycemic results, meaning that everyone had normal A1Cs, but it also showed the kids were growing. It showed remarkable cholesterol results. So there was no cholesterol uh, problems. It showed low total daily insulin dose. So there was no one who was insulin resistant and injecting huge amounts of insulin. It showed normal BMIs. Um, and uh, many other things. <laughs> I mean, the results were unbelievable. And yeah. uh, it was covered in the New York Times. It was so unbelievable. I and think it was published also in the American Pediatrics Association Journal. That's right. Mm. That's right. Uh, yeah, that paper was published uh, by, by Harvard researchers in the, um, the Journal of Pediatrics or mm -hmm. Pediatrics, yeah, which is the official journal of the American Academy yeah. of of pediatricians so it's it's an unbelievable um it's really it's an unbelievable trajectory that our life went on from going from this situation where we had no idea what type one was to participating in this advocacy movement and really changing of how uh and the the not only the uh, associations uh people are sort of having to be they kind of forced to, to look at this and they're kind of forced to say uh, low carb is an option now. And even, even the, the um, CEO of the American Diabetes Association, who is herself a type two, is a low carber and runs normal blood sugars. 
So the word is out. This is yeah. no, we talked about earlier, fad diet. This is no fad diet. The, the processed carbohydrate foods, that's the fad diet and it's failed miserably uh, and it, it has resulted in global obesity. It's the low carb diet, that's the natural diet and um, words getting out and the results like you're getting with the instant A1 success, A1C dropping and the results that Dave's getting as a type one diabetic, um, those kinds of things are changing how diabetes is going to be approached in the next couple of decades. Yeah. And I think the situation is gonna get fixed. It's yeah. if we can get over the addictive properties of the food. Yes. And uh, to add to that, addiction is just there without even recognizing it. But I still have faith in humanity that only if they know they are presented with these options, then a chance of getting away from that addiction and the yeah. consequences therewith is also higher. Because just like everyone else who are already in this way of life, the first time we heard it, we couldn't believe it ourselves, right? Just like when Dave said that I will not just I won't just eat sugar. And all of you just instantly dismissed him saying that's not yes. part of the deal. That's just quite impossible. But now if only we get, that's why we are doing this and we are grateful that you've agreed to be in this in this advocacy because even if we are advocate, advocating in our own circle, but for us working together, seeing that regardless of place, time zone, race or whatever, we are all in this. And this is no fad diet. Fad diet change over time. Though Those who are advocating low carb just like Dr. Bernstein, who is now 87 years old and who have been on low carb since maybe he was diagnosed shortly after he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes since he was 12. So it's not changing. But the other standard, like the carbohydrates and the low fat diet, their, their numbers change over time. From time to time, they have to release another set of guidelines because they know it, it's not working. And we are hopeful, we are positive that right now with the advent of social media, of, of the internet, the truth cannot be buried any longer. Right. But we have to be loud. So by loud, loud. I ask <laughs> all of you, I ask all of you to really share this video. You wouldn't know who will get inspired or who will get educated. And we've been talking about David since since the first second of this video, and I'm sure you are quite excited. What really happened to David? Is he still a, a small boy? And now I will show you who is David now. So that's David. And can you tell us about David now, Artie? Sure, sure. It's my favorite topic. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's a senior in high school. Uh, he plays quarterback. Um, He's a big, strong guy. He lifts lifts weights and um, exercises, and he's probably uh, in a few months he'll be stronger than I am. <laughs> um, and he's doing great. He's doing. He's living the same life as any um, normal teenager, and um, he's as healthy as any teenager. And he has, uh, most importantly, as a teenager, um, you want to have a bright future and a lot of hope um for your life to come and he has that and he has that because of the low carb diet and what dr bernstein has taught him he has hope for the future he can think about getting married 
having children, having grandchildren, and leading a long, healthy life because of the things that he's learned and how to manage his condition. And uh, his mother and I couldn't be more proud of him. And, um, you know, we'll never go back either. We're, we're low carbers for life to support Dave. And um, we just love him with all our heart. And um, it, it's just a, it's tremendous to have such a wonderful child um, like this. Oh, that's really beautiful. And I think you mentioned a while ago that Dave's values, that's what we can see here, an A1C of 4.8, right? It's just the best among type 1 diabetics. And his his uh, physique is really, really healthy. And I can really say that maybe he is even healthier metabolically-wise than, than typical children of his age without diagnosis of diabetes. Would you agree with that, Ardy? I think not only is he obviously physically as at least as healthy, but I think without having to experience these constant ups and downs and not just the fear, but um, that plays uh, a terrible uh, toll on, on uh, neurotransmitters and the physiologic effects on the brain from going up and down like that. By not having that, he's uh, psychologically uh healthy and happy. I don't think it's possible to be up and down and, and feeling terrible all day long and not have that affect your life. So he's healthy and on the inside as well as being healthy on the outside. Oh, that's right. And it really shows uh, with his skin and how he looks and how his brain functions. Amazing. So you really know that he's doing, he is thriving. He's not just living or surviving, but he's thriving in this life at his age. And we have one question here for you, uh, Ardi. Many diabetic and thyroid patients in advocacy groups complain about their, their endo being outdated, dismissive, and outright outright rude for not being open to listening to their symptoms, etc. Many complain of having been misdiagnosed and undiagnosed because many endo refuse to do the proper test or panels for proper diagnosis. I think it applies as well to other medical specialists who are very traditional in their approach and not open to unlearning what they know. And I think it's a problem that we are all seeing. And that's also the reason why we are doing this. But what can you say with that, Ardi? I think that's another um, huge problem. Um, when I talk to parents who understand what Dave's doing and they're trying to go low carb, they also get the same instantaneous results that you're showing with your type two patients where the A1C drops fast. They have the same uh, uh, result on their blood sugar meter. You can see the instant improvements, but when they go to get uh, a, a pat on the back or a congratulations from their endocrinologist, they find that their endocrinologist isn't happy and is urging their, their patients to run high blood sugars. We ask Dr. Bernstein that question very frequently. He gets the same question. And his answer is a little bit dark. And what he says is, well, he says two things. One is that it's possible that the endocrinologists simply don't have any idea how to control blood sugars. They don't know anything about low-carb nutrition. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that they're afraid of getting sued, and their strategy is to run their, their, their diabetic children or adults so high 
that there's no possibility of hypoglycemia. And of course, if you run high like that, you're going to suffer from the consequences of high blood sugars. But the diabetic, but the, the doctors can't be sued for that. So they, they settle on high blood sugar targets to avoid hypoglycemia. And his solution, his way out of that problem is to try to find a new doctor. And it doesn't have to be an endocrinologist. Find a family doctor someone who is sympathetic to your situation, wants you to be healthy and can help you get the medications that you need. Um, but it's a big problem. I don't, I don't know what the solution is. Um, yeah. That's a tough one. You got to be loud, yes. right? Gotta yeah, be loud. we got to be loud. I think that's the only one because uh, like I think I, in behalf of the other doctors, I really believe that no doctor would really want to harm patients. But our capacity to help patients will also be dependent on our experiences. And our experiences can be dictated by what we've learned in medical school and what we continue to learn on our own and our practice. So if we just based our learning on what's being, being given to us, what's being brought to us by, say, for example, pharmaceutical representatives going to our clinics, giving this flyers and samples, then our focus can be just limited to that. But if you are not already satisfied with how things are doing, or sometimes, like for me myself, I, my experiences would be more on personal. I, I came across about this, not actually for my patient, but for myself. And I think I have something that what you're looking for, why you advocated this in public, in social media, because what, that's what we always say. The moment you realize the science behind low carb, why this works, it is just too compelling. And you can never, you can never stop yourself from spreading the word from getting excited. And mm -hmm. we understand that some advocates can be surprised, just like you, that uh, in as much as you are in awe in, in, and amazement when you first discovered this, you will be surprised that there will be those who will just instantly brush it off as if it's, it's a fad diet or there's no truth to it. But I hope we don't get discouraged with that. Instead, keep on posting, keep on spreading the word, be loud because what we are targeting are those people who are actually looking for more who is not satisfied with the standard therapy that they are having despite despite compliance with the medications compliance with all of these specific detailed food lists containing milkshake and chocolate bars they know that it's not the best one yet and those are the people that we want to help those who are open and those who are still willing to learn and before we end, we are already past our time. I have just two things. Even if sure. this one is about type 1 diabetes and low-carb diet and with RD's experience as a parent and as a founder of, of type 1 grit, uh, if this is applicable to children with type 1 diabetes, how low-carb is applicable to type 2 diabetics? Mm. Oh, okay. Well... The, the, the answer is the same for both type 1 and type 2, as a matter of fact. And I like the Bernstein answer, so I'll give his answer. And his answer is that you don't need any carbohydrates, so you can go as low as zero. But he operates under the hypothesis that you probably need to get some vegetable nutrition. So he allows for 30 grams of carbohydrate so that you can have a salad or some steamed vegetables 
or even a few nuts if if uh, he likes to have some pistachios <laughs> and his in his lunch he has like 20 pistachios that he counts out. So that's that's the point of carbohydrates. The, other than that, um, and it would be nice if the vegetables came was with no carbohydrate, by the way. There's nothing about the carbohydrate that we need, um, like you said earlier. The, the point is that there's probably some phytonutrients in the vegetables that are of value. And um, so, you know, what does that mean? It means that uh, we make, instead of rice, we make cauliflower rice. So if I make a steak or some chicken for dinner, we'll serve a little bit of a couple of scoops of cauliflower rice. And that'll be one of his uh, vegetable uh, uh, sources of nutrition for the, for the day. Um, Dr. Bernstein typically allows 30 grams a day for an adult and less for kids because 30 grams of vegetables is actually a lot of vegetables. If you if you measure out 30 grams of carbohydrate vegetable, that's a lot. And for if you take like a four-year-old, it's impossible for a four-year-old to eat a big bag of broccoli, probably. So he'll he uh, shoots for less by body weight for children. Yeah. Okay. So, so the the 30 gram limit is actually not to target the carbs, but it's just like an approximate so that you can get some degree of vitamins yes. and minerals and nutrients coming from those vegetable sources. Yes. And you're not allowed to save up 30 for three days and then get a 90 gram donut. You're not allowed. So we say no grain, no starch, no sugar, and no sweet fruits because those have concentrated carbohydrate, right? Yes. Yes, yes. So we've tackled about that in many of our previous videos, but this one is really, really important. And as you can see, you mentioned the 30 gram limit. We emphasize that it's limit and it's not a target that you should. Right. So that's the maximum. So if, so if you choose to just have 10 and 20 and that's okay, that's okay. So that's we right. would like to, I would like to emphasize, do, would you have, would you still happen to know what's the target carbohydrate intake of the American Diabetes Association per meal? Wow. That's an interesting question because you you know? I would ask them that in the past on social media and they would respond with a quantity. And now they respond very sneakily and they say, uh, you, you should consult your dietitian. Uh, about that. But if you go on their web pages uh, in the American Diabetes Association, they have something called the plate. Yeah. And they tell you to fill the plate with some vegetable and some starchy vegetable or grain, and then some lean protein. So they're still sticking with the high carbohydrate, low fat mm -hmm. diet. But they're trying to get away from telling you how many grams or what percent, because it seems like they're afraid of something, right? <laughs> they're afraid of those numbers coming back to haunt them. So they've tried to erase history. And you can still, if you're good on the internet, you can still go yeah. back and uncover the, the truth. But um, And actually, uh, even if I've asked you that, when I did my uh, my own research on like how to handle uh, insulin injections and all that, because my practice really, although I have that in my medical school, general internal medicine, medicine study, but my practice is actually ENT. So we don't 
we don't really prescribe insulin on a day-to-day basis. So I have to have my own research on this. And what I found out is their target carbohydrates for a normal adult is actually 60 to 70 grams of carbohydrates per meal. That's not per day, per meal. And how many meals do they give? It's five. It's three major meals plus snacks in between. So yes, there's snacks because actually when you're fueling in glucose, you'll really need snacks because every two hours you'll get hungry. That's right. The, uh, the, the, at least in the United States, the trained dietitians, they act like snacks are of vital importance to an adult. You should constantly be eating. And then they wonder why there's so much obesity. Yes. And so. speaking of snacks, I can recall one of my patients again this morning who have had, I think, an episode of epilepsy before, and he's mm. been on a rigid diet, and uh, the whole family is already into low carb. He's the only one left because he is still following the very, very strict meal of 7 a.m., 10 a.m., 12, 3 p.m., 5 p.m. And what is he is saying with me is that he's emphasizing and he's somewhat very proud that in the morning he would make a, a, a watermelon juice with all of these milk and sugar in it. Mm. And in the afternoon, he would make a berry, berry shake or fruit shake, something like that. And he told me that because he thinks it's the healthiest part as it's Mm. the healthiest part of his daily routine. But of course, he did mention as well that during lunchtime, he would consume just a piece of meat and a whole plate of rice. And they're wondering why they have struggles with with hypertension, with with, uh, edema in the feet, only at the age of 30. Mm. So this is a very young man. This is a very Mm. young man and many more. So, but it's important that we are already on the right track. And lastly, since David is type 1 diabetic and you said he has a sibling, you, uh, you have another son who, is, who doesn't have type 1 diabetes. So what can you say with low carb for children without type 1 diabetes? Well, I think, first of all, it's very interesting to watch my youngest son compete athletically because he's a, a top athlete in the state as well. And... Um, you say, well, where does he get his energy from? Because he's not eating carbohydrate. And the answer is that the body runs on a combination of glucose and fat, and it depends on how what you eat, what the proportions are. So he's just, he's running primarily on free fatty acids as his fuel. And what we notice with him is that he's a swimmer. When he's swimming, he has incredible endurance. And I mean, incredible. So he's able to swim for hours and um, he's extremely strong. And and so the combination of protein and fat that he eats and the little bit of vegetable seems to be very optimal for a young athletic child. But um, the main reason that my son Hayden eats low carb is to support his brother. And he loves his brother dearly. And... I think he feels like if he sets an example or follows the same example that his brother, then it, it, it makes it more likely that his brother will have success over his entire life. Um, So he's always just stuck with the diet and never complained, never asked to have uh, any food. 
that he shouldn't have. And he doesn't sneak or anything like that at school. He's really, um, he's oh, yeah, really he's dedicated sick. to the family. And, um, you know, it's a beautiful thing. It really How is. How young is he? How young? Um, he's in, he's in 10th grade now. So okay. he's six, he's going to be 16 in March. Yeah. And he's been low carb since. Well, basically around six or seven, I guess. Right. Okay. That's the math. So pretty much forever. He never really, um, probably remembers. Okay. Um, that was a long time ago for yeah. him. So, so it's like a lifetime of his memory. Yeah. It's like and this I, is hard. This is his normal. That's right. And another benefit, you know, is it's, it's now it's, it's type one, type two diabetes and obesity are so common that um, I think every kid growing up has a, a about a 50% chance of becoming obese in type two or having metabolic syndrome. And I can guarantee you that if my son Hayden is the non-diabetic, if he follows this low carb diet, he won't even come close. There's, it's, it's virtually impossible to become a diabetic if you eat this fad, this fad diet that we're talking about. If you eat a low-carb diet, which is basically um, protein foods, vegetables, some nuts, um, maybe a couple of low-carb treats now and then, that's, that's the end. You will never develop a type 2 diabetes. It's impossible. I think it's basically impossible. It's impossible to be overweight. I eat as much food as I can eat without, uh, and I can't, I can't really gain weight. Um, not like I did before. Um, so I think it not only is it reversing in your patients, but it's stopping the development for, for young people where it's such a problem. Yeah. So going back, I, as you can recall to my patient, the one with 7.2 and now at 5.6 FHB1C in just 25 days, when I first saw her, because I, I knew her daughter and I asked her to take the labs before starting day one of low carb. So that was the 7.2 is really his, her typical diet. And when she asked me for what's my diagnosis, I told her diabetes. If, and if you come to a usual doctor, you would be started with medications right then and there. Right. But since this is your first time, let's try to adjust your diet. And now she asked me again. So what's my diagnosis? So I say, you're not diabetes. You're, you don't have diabetes because it's right. 5.6. It's really, really normal. So it's amazing. So uh, before we end, I would like to emphasize on what you mentioned. So your youngest son is doing low carb. The motivation is his love for his brother, right? Yes. But his biochemistry, does it support it? Well, I think it's optimal. And by that, you, you are saying he's basically fueling not on glucose, but on fatty acids. Are you referring to fatty acids alone or does it include ketones? Well, if you, okay, so ketones is an interesting topic, but if you tested um, the family, if you tested my ketones and Dave's ketones and Hayden's ketones and my wife's ketones, yes, you would find that we're all positive. We all have some degree, uh, some, some slight, degree of ketone. mild ketosis. Yes. Yes. And, um, and the, the primary fuel source for Hayden's muscles is indeed free fatty acids, but the ketones do other things. They fuel other parts of the body. Yeah. And, um, and 
in the sport that I mentioned, the swimming, where he has a lot of endurance, it's very interesting. Um, you can play games with a ketone meter if you have one. If he comes out of the pool after uh, practicing for several hours, what we find is that his ketones are high. And that means that the body has recognized that there's a need for, um, a, a, let's say, the generation of fuel types in the metabolic fuel types to, to fuel um, what's, what he's doing. If you did that same measurement for a non-diabetic kid who's on high carbs, they wouldn't have the ketone levels that are the same. They wouldn't be able to turn on that metabolism the same way. And the reason why is if you watch these kids before they exercise, they're all eating candy basically yeah. before they exercise. Mm -hmm. So we would go to a swim meet and the kids were being fed um, chips and grapes before they swim for energy. And, and that's what your kid would have. I found that very odd and my kid did not participate and he beat everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so he doesn't have any like recovery food or in between food during the during the the event. He doesn't need to eat in the event, but after he came home and his ketones were elevated, <laughs> it's time to eat some protein foods, right? Yeah. So he had his he had a big steak, as a matter of fact, and then in the next morning we measured his ketones for fun, and the ketones came back down to the normal, which is how it works. If, yes. you, if you're measuring those kind of ketones and you don't have type 1 diabetes, it means, okay, you eventually yes. you need to eat. <laughs> and for this, I, I am actually focusing on that because children, parents of children without diabetes who are considered as normal children, they are afraid to put their children into low carb because they consider children as pure sugar burners. And the only one that we can emphasize, if there is generally, naturally, metabolically flexible in the world, it's actually the children who can easily adapt. That's true. That's true. Um, I, I would advise the parents that um, I think they should start looking around at their, their, um, their, their children's classmates be, and see what they're eating and look at their condition. Because when, when I was a kid, we had one, it was, it, and my friends too that I meet who are my age, I'm 50, there was always one kid in class that was overweight, one, one kid in your school that was overweight. And now it's like all the kids are overweight. And I looked the other day, by the way, I looked at, in my sixth grade yearbook, I looked at the kid that we thought was overweight at the time and I looked at him and he wasn't overweight at all compared to the kids today. <laughs> so, so this idea that we should be afraid to not eat carbohydrate is backwards. If you look around at what's going on with child obesity and you can see it in your child's friends groups, um, most likely, you should be afraid to be continuing to give your kid the same foods, by the way, which are likely making you um, obese or start to have medical problems. You, you should not be sick when you're 35, 45, or 50 when you're a young parent. And what's making you sick is the carbohydrate foods, the processed carbohydrate foods. And those foods, you need to get them out of the house for yourself and you need to get them out of, your, out of the house so that your child doesn't become um, in the same condition. Yeah. And what are you going to replace it with? 
you're going to replace it with healthy protein foods and vegetables. You're going to have, and that's the ideal diet. And everybody knows it, by the way. If you saw the kind of foods that Dave was eating, a, a beautiful plate of, of, of chicken or a hamburger and, and a, a side of vegetables, everybody knows that if you are training to be an athlete and really um, protecting your body and, and trying to develop that that would be the proper food source. So it's it's not the the orange juice and the cakes and the cookies and the lunchbox and the and the buns and so on, the sugar buns. It's not that food. That food is not going to make your child ultimately happy at the end of the day. It's going to make your child sick over the long pole. And that's not what you want as a parent. As a parent, it's all about the long game and raising a child to be a healthy and happy adult. And you're not doing that with this processed food diet. And what I always say, we had a medical mission yesterday at the far-flung areas in the coastal areas here in the Philippines. And I've received a lot of mothers carrying their children, all complaining that their ch children do not have the appetite. They won't eat. But when I ask, how about if you give them biscuits or juice? And they will say, of course they will eat. So, <laughs> yeah. and you're looking for answer from me. So we just need to do some more health education and it will start by what you bring into your home. So start cleaning your pantry and try to know which foods are really real foods. And for children, I always say, what will make your children grow is not the bread or the rice. It's, it's actually the meat. It's the viand, it's the proteins, it's the chicken, it's the it doesn't need to be expensive it's the eggs it's the small fish yes. that you can buy so all of that yes. so thank you so much rd for for gracing us with your presence i hope to have you again soon with david and for yeah. any last message for parents of diabetics and non-diabetics children oh my god uh <laughs> no but i love the i love the be loud that's my favorite <laughs> thing uh, from the hour i'm gonna remember <laughs> I'm inspired to be loud and I really appreciate you having me on and allowing us to um, spread this message. I think um, I think we're making progress and I'm really glad to meet you and see what you're doing. And it's it's it, it makes me feel good to see that other people are pushing like we're pushing. So thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. The pleasure is ours and we are looking for more future and of course uh, making as we go louder, there will be more of us and eventually low carb is going to be a normal word of mouth as what my brother used to say. Maybe someday when you see someone improving after a long while, like from a fat getting muscles are thinner, you can just ask. You can just ask right away, are you doing low carb? That's yeah, how that's our goal. That's our goal to make it a common language, an everyday thing. And even if we are somewhat saturated with this knowledge, especially in our communities, life without rice, low carb feasting and fasting community, and of course, uh RD Dykman's type one grit, we are still the minority. And as we end this, we go and be loud. Be loud, everyone. I am Dr. Josephine Grace Roja, and we have R.D. Dykeman of Type 1 Grid. Thank you very much, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And I think we're...